so that patients have providers that you know look like them that understand their lived experiences and that's what patients can really teach us about what are their lived experiences that are impacting their care beyond just what we see and when we take our histories and we do our physical exams patients have have really great stories to tell us about all their experiences that they've lived and how can we hear those better is what's important welcome back to fit as a fiddle i'm your host dr sneha ghazi I am a physical therapist and owner of Sneha Physical Therapy, located in New York City. I'm also the founder and executive director of Physical Therapy International Service Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit that brings free PT resources, treatment, and education to underserved communities all over the world. I am obsessed with the fact that if you feel better inside and out, you live a better life. Each episode on Fit as a Fiddle brings you phenomenal guests in the health and wellness space who share inspiring tips and tangible advice. This podcast is for a community of people who want to keep their mind, body, and spirit healthy and thriving. Thanks for tuning in. Please subscribe, review, and enjoy today's show. Welcome to this next episode. We are really excited to have Dr. Camille Clare. She is an OBGYN practicing in New York City. Um, and she has a lot of different credentials, a lot of different uh, involvement in, within healthcare in the city and beyond. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to have you dive right into it. You have a lot of things that you're involved in. So tell us a little bit about that and the efforts that you're putting into your work in the city. Yeah, I mean, I, as an OBGYN, I think my primary affiliation has been with the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Um, I am a member of District 2, which is in New York and Bermuda, and it represents about 5,000 practicing OBGYNs throughout the state. And a lot of my advocacy um, and activism has been with ACOG um, because we have a lot of interest in the women that we take care of and that we serve. Um, and ensuring access to many different aspects of women's health care. And so my role, upcoming role, is currently I'm the chair-elect, and I will be the chair of, the, of District 2 in this coming fall. Um, and so I've been involved in the organization since my residency, and so I think that really laid the foundation for um, just advocating for my patients, advocating for physicians, their ability to practice and take care of patients, I think has been really critical to my career. So, um, so you know, that's my main affiliation. I've also been very involved and interested in, in disparities in health equity um, and through my involvement with the National Medical Association, which is the largest and oldest organization of African-American physicians in the United States. We are celebrating our 125th year this year, so that is just extremely pivotal in that um, it was founded at a time where black physicians were not able to become members of the American Medical Association, so we're, we're as relevant now than, ever, than we ever have been um, because African-American physicians are only 4% of the physician workforce, and so we speak to 
you know, health equity and, dis and, and addressing and mitigating disparities, um, you know, that's our, that's our central to our mission and, our, and what we believe in. And so um, as a black woman physician, I wear both hats. Um, that is in practice. I, I, wear, I wear all those hats. So I think those are very, very important to me. Great. So you have so much that you've done and so many, uh, you know, hats that you've been involved in from a macro level uh, with all these large organizations and also within the universities and helping with the education aspect of it. So my big question to you is what drove you to this mission, both from uh, the side of healthcare disparity and also through the side of public health? Yeah, I think what's been really critical to my to my career and my trajectory is that I um, I was trained in the Bronx. I went to Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and um, <clears throat> I'm a first generation um, person. My parents were immigrants from Jamaica, West Indies, and I think that has really um, shaped my development in addressing health disparities um, because I saw that in my immediate community. Um, and so I think that's really started me off in my career. And then I work at a, a safety net hospital. And so I really am able to see the social determinants of health play out directly in the patients that I take care of. So I think all of that has really shaped um, the type of physician I am and, the, and my interest in advocating uh, for my patients on a day-to-day -day basis. That's great. So we're going to dive right in talking about healthcare disparity and particularly in the birth world with maternal care and something that you see day in and day out in the hospital systems and in the educational systems that you work in. So my first question for you is, what really are the barriers that mothers and um, people who are in the birth world have from receiving care, particularly for the black and brown communities? Yeah, I think, um, I think we would be remiss if we did not name and state that institutional and structural racism has really played a huge part in, um, in, in impacting care. Um, so patients are, are demanding respectful care, and we need to be accountable to that. So, so I think that has really shaped um, you know, access to care, implicit bias and explicit bias at the healthcare delivery um, you know, interface has really affected um, people's ability to get care. And there are many, many factors which impact maternal morbidity and mortality. What we've done at uh, an ACUG level, the American College of Obstetrician and Gynecologist level, is we've addressed from a care perspective um, patient safety factors that has played a role in maternal mor morbidity and mortality. So through our initiative, which is called the Safe Motherhood Initiative, we have several bundles of care, which basically is addressing, you know, clinical care that's delivered by physicians and, and obstetrical providers to address things such as hemorrhage. Um, um, hemorrhage during delivery is a, is a huge re, uh, reason for maternal morbidity and mortality. Um, hypertension or high blood pressure. Um, uh, thromboembolism is a huge um, factor. And sepsis, which is one of the most recent um, bundles that we've developed. And most recently, actually, our next goal is to establish a racial and ethnic disparities bundle and, and really look at all our bundles that we already have in existence, the ones I've already mentioned, 
and, and looking at that from an equity lens so that everything that we're doing to address these clinical factors that have, have you know, been implicated in maternal morbidity and mortality, what can we do better um, from an equity perspective? So, so look forward to, to folks, um, you know, reading about that and seeing our efforts. On a national level as well, we have a task force, um, and if you look on the ACOG website, you can see a lot of the factors that we're looking to address to, to look at um, race, ethnicity, gender, um, multi-generational factors as OBGYN providers and physicians, um, and how we can address the different ways that care is being delivered in rural settings, in urban settings, in multiple different settings where patients are, are accessing care. And I think that's really been um, pivotal to figuring out why, um, you know, moms are passing away during this, this critical time of their lives and what can we do to address that. So from a very micro level now, um, getting really specific because I think you're just such a great resource for people to hear from like literally the mouth of an OBGYN who works in this very particular field with this very particular population. There may be lots of um, different viewpoints on how care is delivered and how care is received. So could you kind of dive into uh, specific cases um, you know, they can be general, it doesn't have to be a very specific patient, but specific cases where we can see time and time again where a practitioner does not deliver care um, with equity in mind to a patient or a patient that maybe doesn't receive care in the same way compared to a counterpart, just because due to their uh, demographic, their racial, uh, you know, position in that in, uh, city or town, um, their financial considerations, et cetera. I mean, I think in many um, healthcare systems and, you know, and academic medical centers where care is delivered, I think social determinants of health and, and being aware of those are, are really critical to healthcare delivery. And I think um, just as physicians and, and future physicians, because I train medical students and residents, how we can educate ourselves about those structural factors that, um, that impact care, I think is really, really important. So you know, our patients experience things such as, you know, potentially food insecurity and housing instability and, um, and transportation, which affects how they can come into the healthcare systems that we work. I think have all played a factor in the patients that I've taken care of over many, many years. And so, um, you know, we have, um, you know, good relationships with social services to address some of those factors. Um, there's been discussion about um, community, um, community lay workers and really using the resources of community-based organizations to address, um, you know, patients sort of where they are and what resources they can get in their own community. So when they leave the hospital system or the healthcare delivery system, they're able to be best connected to not only see us back, but also get the appropriate follow-up. And so addressing that and looking at that perspective, multiple stakeholders addressing the care of patients beyond just the physicians, the nurses, the physical therapists, those of us that are in the direct care, healthcare space, I think is critical. Um, and I think we're working on that, um, building those relationships, you know, as I mentioned, with ACOG, with the National Medical Association, with all the, the 
institutions I'm affiliated with, I think has been really critical in being able to be the best physician that I can for my patients, individually and on the community health level. Uh, because public health, as we've seen with the corona pandemic, um, is really, really important, and it will continue to be important for our patients. Absolutely, and we're really grateful to have you be there, especially on the educational side of things, because I think the biggest thing is there's a lot of programming that can be done to fix the current problems that are within the system, but really starting from educating healthcare professionals and educating patients. That's where the biggest barrier lies, and I think the paths in which you're uh, educating um, and offering these opportunities is really the way to go. And if we don't do it that way, I don't think there's really a way that we can target it from ground up. So it's, it's great that you, um, that you have all of these uh, avenues, really. I think it's important to empower patients to, to advocate for themselves and not be afraid to, to you know, point something to the attention of their, their healthcare professionals that they interface with. So just giving patients the tools to do that, I think, is really, really important. What can they look out for? What clinical scenarios that they may be experiencing before they even see us? What can their families look out for even before they come into the hospital setting? Uh, when should they come in? Those kind of things are important. Yeah, and to your point, I'm, I'm just looking at your, the statistics that you gave on the Essence article recently. And it says sure. that only a third of pregnant black women get the recommended 7 to 10 prenatal care visits. So there's like multiple levels for reasons why the care isn't being provided, right? Um, from a, a very large racial disparity perspective, financial, transportation, all the things that you had just mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, but part of it is just that from the provider side, giving that education to the patient in various ways that they can have access to it readily, um, just like anybody else should have access to it and making it aware that you know, these are all the things that you can do, and here are all your options. Not saying you have to do this or you have to do that, but here are all the recommendations and here are all the options, and giving that to patients um, is really the best way to start uh, teaching and really getting us the next step forward um, outside of this problem. Great. Um, are there any big statistics and research along these lines that really highlight this issue that you can bring forth today for us? Well, we know that black women in particular are three to four times more likely to, to die during childbirth. Those statistics are very well publicized and known. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, we're addressing, looking at the many, many different ways. A, the New York State Department of Health has maternal mortality review boards throughout the country. Um, pretty much every state has that. And in New York in particular, we not only have one at the state level, we also have a New York City um, maternal mortality committee so that we can really um, learn from each individual patient that has passed away because really all you're able to learn about a patient is from that particular patient. But what can we learn from that unfortunate situation? How can it improve the care that we're giving? How can we better address those social determinants that we talked about? And, and how can we, again, use the resources in the community of a patient before she you know, hits the healthcare system? So I think that's also another strategy that we've done at the state level. And it's, as I said, there's an MMRB pretty much in every state in the United States um, to really address that um, even better. Great. Um, and now this all 
sounds so good, right? That there are all these efforts going in. But if somebody is listening today and they too understand how big this problem is, whether it's affected them or their families or not, and they're listening from a patient perspective, what is something that somebody can do today to help solve this problem, decrease the barriers, and help in this effort? Yeah, I mean, I think, as I mentioned, how can... How can, as a patient, I can best continue to to have my voice being heard? How can I work with my healthcare provider as a critical piece of the healthcare team, um, with me as the patient at the center of the healthcare team, the person who's get, as accessing that care? Mm-hmm. So I think, as a from a patient perspective, learning how to do that. Um, learning what things to look out for that I may be, um, may be experiencing either during the, the care that I'm going to receive or after, for example, in maternity care after I have a baby or after I have a gynecologic procedure. So I think really um, being knowledgeable about that and also being able to address some of the barriers that can affect why I'm not able to get that information. Are there, are there structural competency issues from the point of the provider that who may not be aware of those factors that I have to, me as a patient, I have to, uh, you know, face. Um, are there cultural awareness factors that um, my provider needs to be aware of? Um, do I need to know from a language perspective, um, are there barriers from a language perspective that are affecting my ability to communicate with my provider? And I think that those kind of things are really, really important. And so I think moving beyond just, the doctor-patient relationship, which is important, having improved communication. We know that, for example, it's been shown for black patients, they did a huge study about black men and affecting uh, cardiovascular disease. And they found that African-American male patients, when they saw an African-American provider, physician in particular, they were more likely to experience or be offered a lot of the preventative care services than if they weren't. So I think the physician uh, workforce, really improving diversity in the physician workforce can really impact that. And as I mentioned, the National Medical Association is right at the forefront of that. So, so we know that the workforce issues are really, really important so that patients have providers that you know, look like them, that understand their lived experiences, and that's what patients can really teach us about. What are their lived experiences that are impacting their care beyond just what we see and when we take our histories and we do our physical exams? Patients have, have really great stories to tell us about all their experiences that they've lived and how can we hear those better is what's important. That's so good. There are so many great things that you just said there. Uh, I think that one of the biggest things is increasing diversity in the professions. Healthcare is not a diverse profession um, as much as it should be, and it's so crucial in our systems. It, health is just you know the forefront of anything to drive a community and drive a nation forward, and I think that all the efforts that the National Medical Association, ACOG, and all of these other organizations, the work that you do, on a day-to-day basis, educating your patients um, is really what we need. And I wish there were more of you, <laughs> Camille. We need <laughs> more of you. <laughs> we're working on that, right? Diversity, we're working on that. <laughs> exactly. So last question. Um, now, we have all this stuff about improving communication and all of this stuff. So if I want to hear from you. If a patient walks through the door um, to see a physician, and let's just say that this is a person of color, who um, 
may not be educated in every way of uh, the procedure or the intervention that's being given. What is an example that you can give the audience of something that they can say, like real words or phrases that they can say to break down that first level barrier? Because it's, I think that's one of the most challenging things is making that um, first step. And it's so important. I don't think we should be scared about doing it, but it is scary to do it. So what is something from a provider perspective that you would appreciate your patient saying to you um, that increases communication, breaks down those barriers between the two of you, and helps drive patient-centered care? I think what's really been important and what I've learned over the years in my practice is um, having patients ask me questions, not being afraid to ask me questions about things that I may be saying that they don't understand. Do they not understand about a particular procedure? Do they not understand about something that's happening to them? Why a test needs to be done? What am I looking for in that particular test? Um, I think practice, medical practice has really changed. We welcome those questions from patients. We want them to be able to ask about anything in their care. Um, and, and because it's their bodies and they know their bodies the best, right? And so I think um, breaking down those barriers, and that comes with trust and really developing that relationship that I mentioned, communicating um, with my patient um, the best I can, um, has really been able to establish that trust. Not all questions we can answer in one, in one visit. Sometimes that requires multiple visits, multiple times to develop that trust over time. And so I think from a patient perspective, not being afraid to ask those those important questions. And, and, and I think that's what's really key because physicians, healthcare providers are, are, are there to serve in many ways. I came into medicine to serve, to take care of others. And I hope to, I'd like to think that I have the humility to do so, um, but I learn from my patients every day. Every single day I learn from them. And so they have a lot to teach me and I have a lot to learn. So, so I, that's what I would say from a patient perspective. And I hope, hope that's been translated well enough for the patients to understand. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you, Camilla. I learn every day from my patients. I think that the clinician I am today is not necessarily just because of the textbook work that I did, but figuring out a way to make patients understand what I'm saying, get rid of, get, getting rid of the jargon, breaking it down in a way that doesn't sound so medicalized and so complicated and things that they can do immediately and things that they can implement into their everyday lives to improve their health and their quality of life. So I totally agree that um, listening to patients is what really providers need to do. And then asking questions is really what patients need to do. And once that, you know, that line of communication is a little, just a little bit more open, I think that we will really start seeing changes in, um, the way that people are receiving care and the way people are understanding their care, too. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think another another solution is really incorporating families into the care of patients. I know it's been a challenge, the pandemic of, of bringing multiple people into the hospital with, with a patient nowadays. We're doing a lot more telehealth and those, are, those have additional barriers with lack of appropriate Wi-Fi and broadband, which has been a challenge. But I think really patients using their family members as their advocates 
with them and for them, I think are really, really important so that if the patient question is not answered, the family member has a question um, that they may have thought of that the patient didn't think of to ask. And I think that's also important. Yeah, that's great. Sometimes that can be a double-edged sword. <laughs> it is a double-edged sword. It totally is a double-edged sword. But I mean, I think, you know, again, we're, you know, we're part of a team. Yes. And, um, you know, there is no, there is no I in team. You know, we're, there's a we. And so, you know, healthcare, um, healthcare providers, physicians, physical therapists, nurses, social workers, families, patients, that's going to make the team be stronger. Um, so I think that's key. Especially when it comes to maternal care and pelvic health, too, because a lot of that is bringing new humans into this world. And usually there's one, one more person who's involved, usually, not always. That's right. But there's usually a system and a support system for that individual and everyone being on the same page with um, the guidelines or the recommendations is so helpful because then the patient is uh, able to more easily implement those changes when everybody is involved in the care. Yeah, and, and, and in maternity care in particular, the, the other person, the other persons that are involved are, are doulas, um, doulas and, and midwives, um, as I mentioned. They're critical part of the OB team uh, with us. So I think, you know, having all those members um, to, to improve maternity care is, is, is critical to what we do. Very, very well said. Thank you so much for all of your words of wisdom. I really hope that um, the conversations that we've had today uh, spurs some change in patient behavior and provider behavior and even at the smallest level. Uh, I definitely think that it will. Um, Camille has given us such great uh, words of wisdom, tangible things that you can implement in that uh, clinical environment um, when you sit in front of that doctor, when the doctor sits in front of the patient. Um, and we're, we're really grateful for your wisdom in this field, especially with all the different organizations that you're involved in, all the research and the affiliations that you have with universities. So thank you so much. Thank you for the time. I really appreciate being able to talk to you today. A big thank you to everyone who listened to today's episode. Thank you for investing in yourself and your well-being. The goal here is to educate and be educated. If you learned something new today, please subscribe, rate, and review. It means the world. I will see you again next week with an exciting new guest and topic to share with all of you.